coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Uh, headline that's greeted us this morning, a federal court judge, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, ruling in favor of DeKalb County residents, other residents as well, allowing them living outside city limits to begin collecting signatures for a referendum petition aimed at putting the planned Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, a.k.a. Cop City, on the ballot. That also restarts the 60-day timeline, and here to talk with us a little bit about that, one of the many folks volunteering with the uh, Cop City referendum are our friend, former state and federal prosecutor, Alex Joseph. Alex, how are you? Are you staying cool in this heat? I'm trying. It's been hard, and it's going to be hard for all of our canvassers going, getting out there and getting the final signatures we need to get this done and get this on the ballot. I'm starting to wonder when we're going to uh, see some new law that uh, prohibits us from giving you guys cold water as well. But uh, in the meanwhile, let's not give any ideas to the opposition. They've given us plenty to uh, to deal with thus far. So what does today's ruling mean in layman's terms? It means two things. So first, this was a lawsuit to challenge the requirement that in order to go out and collect signatures, you had to be an Atlanta resident. So this is a residency requirement for petition collectors. That type of requirement has been challenged in four states and has been found unconstitutional. So the legal team here knew that they were on firm legal ground when they filed their motion challenging it. But the cherry on top is that in addition to the fact that that requirement, that you have to be a city of Atlanta resident to collect petitions, that requirement is done away with. So anyone that's a Georgia resident can go out and and collect signatures and can and should volunteer with the referendum campaign. In addition, the clock, we get an additional 60 days. So the city of Atlanta has to issue new petition forms that get rid of that residency requirement, that language. And as soon as we have those new petition forms in our hands, we get an additional 60 days. And that is on top of the 60 days that we've had so far. Sorry, we haven't had 60 days so far, but that almost 50 days we've had so far to collect signatures. So in total, we're gonna get almost 120 days to collect these signatures. And that's really exciting because we are halfway towards our goal of collecting 70,000 signatures. And that's the number we need to get this on the ballot. So now with the extra days, it is all but guaranteed that we will reach that finish line and we will get this on the ballot. Okay. That was, that answers a couple of questions that I had right away. That means that the signatures you already have are valid and that the old petitions without the, or with the requirement are still going to be valid as well. Correct. Correct. And that's just kind of common sense because those signatures that were gathered met that higher requirement. It means that they were gathered and that an Atlanta resident witnessed those signatures being gathered. Nothing else about those signatures would be invalid in any way. So those absolutely count towards our total. And, And as you mentioned before, any Georgia resident now can participate in circulating the petitions for signatures. Is that right? That is correct. And that is so important in this case in particular, because that type of requirement, this residency requirement, it is meant to prevent outside agitators coming into a state and putting something on the ballot that the citizens don't want. But in this case, in particular with this project, this is a project that is being funded and built by the state of Atlanta, but it's being built in unincorporated DeKalb. So the fact that citizens that lived in unincorporated DeKalb could not have a say was unconstitutional and made no sense when we're talking about this project in particular, which impacts 
citizens outside of Atlanta. Yeah, I, I always thought it was a, a, a little odd that there there were no recourse for DeKalb County residents, particularly those who live in the district that this public safety training facility is going to wind up being in. But at least now they can put a little bit of skin in the game. Exactly. I mean, they can participate now in collecting signatures. They still cannot sign. It has to be an Atlanta resident that signs the petition. And that is because it is an Atlanta law that we are seeking to repeal through the referendum, but they can participate in gathering signatures. And I also want to remind any DeKalb County citizens out there that are listening um, that their CEO, his term is maxed out. So there will be a DeKalb County CEO election next year. And I really think that I want to hear Cop City talked about on the campaign trail with that race. Do we have candidates for that yet? We do. We have four candidates, three of whom are current sitting county commissioners, and that's going to be the type of election that is decided in a DeKalb, or sorry, in a Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, so, but let's let's clear one thing up because I have had people ask me this: uh, if you are an Atlanta DeKalb resident, you can sign the petition because you are a city of Atlanta resident. You just happen to live that's- in DeKalb County as well. That's correct. So I myself am an Atlanta resident that lives in DeKalb County. So I live in East Lake, mm-hmm. and I can sign the petition. Um, and what I would say to people if they're struggling to figure out if they can sign, are you zoned for Atlanta public schools? Did you vote for the mayor? But if you're still unsure, you can go to the Secretary of State website and you can look up your voting registration and it will list your municipality and you'll need to see Atlanta listed there in order to be eligible to sign the referendum petition. We're with Alex Joseph, former state federal prosecutor. She's also out there volunteering with the uh, Cop City referendum. Uh, What do you make of the city and the state's premise that this entire referendum situation is invalid? I want to say two things about that, and both are equally important, so I I need your listeners to listen to both. So the first thing is, we always knew that this lawsuit was not the right venue to challenge the validity of the referendum. It is too soon, and it's not what the lawsuit was about. So it's sort of like when you're arguing with your spouse, and they bring up what you did on vacation 10 years ago, it's Uh, like, no, 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 that's not relevant. Right. And so, but it's important that that we acknowledge that they threw in an argument that those lawyers knew was completely irrelevant. And they did it for two reasons, to get press so that there were news articles pointing out that the referendum was invalid in their eyes, which casts doubt on the whole process and makes people not want to sign or volunteer. And then two, they did it to put a little like, you know, earworm in the judge's ear to say, judge, this whole effort is invalid so why give them the extra days why allow non-atlanta residents to collect signatures and i think it is telling that the judge fully ignored that argument because he recognized it was premature and he also discounted their attempts to paint this effort as illegitimate because at its core not only is it legal we're following in the footsteps of camden county but it's democracy at its core and then the second thing i want to say and I, i sort of previewed it there is that the referendum is valid. There was a lawsuit, a a legal case, Claxton versus Kemp, that limited citizens' ability to use a referendum to do what we're doing here, which is to repeal a law and to cancel a contract. But years later, this year, in fact, Camden County happened, which is a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it reversed Claxton versus Kemp. And it said, no, 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 citizens have the right to referendum and they have the right to cancel contracts through referendum and they have the right to 
repeal unfavorable laws. And so we are following in the footsteps of Camden, which factually is very, very similar to this case. And I am confident that not only is the referendum valid, but it is going to be upheld for the same reasons the referendum was upheld in the Camden case. Yeah, I I felt like that that was one of those means to just kind of cast out, as you mentioned, on the referendum in and of itself to maybe inhibit folks from wanting to sign. Did it have any impact like that? We saw it didn't have any impact on the judge. It didn't have any impact. And I did see, and you know, not to quote a tweet, but I did see a really interesting tweet. And we have to remember that this is a giant construction project, that there are large bank loans involved, a lot of private and public funding. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments I saw on law Twitter was that they were making that argument to basically assure banks and lenders that this was a project that was going to go forward and the referendum was not going to succeed because if there is doubt that the project is going to go forward, we're going to start seeing banks not paying out on loans. We're going to see the project struggle to get funding. And I think that that's what they were trying to prevent. And I think that this ruling has, in fact, cast out on the entire project, and we are going to see funding start to fall through. There actually have been vendors that have backed out of this project, though, haven't there? I've, I've seen some headlines about that, especially on Twitter. Oh, absolutely. And what this does, and I, I do want to talk about, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but what this does is by giving us an additional 60 days, mm-hmm. we will no longer be on the November ballot, which was a, a school board election. We will be on the March ballot, right? Oh. Once we have collected all of our signatures. Uh, So you keep hearing the number 70,000. We actually need less. So 70,000 is with a healthy buffer, right? Okay. Once we have a pile of signatures, we are going to file for an injunction, which is a court order halting the construction. And I am confident, one, we will get the court order halting the construction while we argue over the petition signatures and make sure we have enough, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's no reason to think we won't get the injunction all the way through the March election. So what we are forecasting is that we're going to get a court order to stop the construction and that that court order is going to be in place until the March election. So this project will be on hold for many months to come once we've collected all the signatures. And I think that there are attorneys right now for the state of Atlanta, there are attorneys at the Atlanta Police Foundation, and they're saying the same thing to their client. And I think that those rooms are full of panic. So not being on the November ballot, but then getting placed on the March ballot, tell us about the differences. What sort of turnout can you expect from, is that the primary? Is that the... Yeah, so that is the primary. And initially, we were concerned that that would be the Republican primary as President Biden was unopposed. It now appears that President Biden will be opposed, which means that that will be a contested Democratic primary and a Republican primary, um, which is good for just general turnout the vote efforts. We have done internal polling to compare the November election to the March election. And as is to be expected, many more people turn out for the primary than turn out for a school board election. So we will, in fact, have to turn out more people. But we also have additional time to raise funds, to do marketing. Um, And frankly, I think this referendum win, this win right now that we're talking about in the court, it really validates this entire um, movement and this, the referendum campaign itself, and people are seeing that it is legal, it is valid, and it's going to succeed. And I think it is a huge endorsement of our efforts. And so I think we're going to see a lot more support. We are with Alex Joseph, former state federal prosecutor, attorney, and a volunteer with the uh, Stop Cop City referendum campaign out there, literally on the streets getting these signatures. What is the mood? I mean, it's like 100 degrees. The humidity is unbearable. How how are how are the folks out there on the streets kind of keeping their their you know their their moods bright and, and and keeping smiles on their faces while wiping away the sweat and getting these signatures? 
Right. So, I mean, I personally collected almost 500 signatures. I volunteer in our east side office two days a week. So I really am deeply involved in this. Mm -hmm. And I will say that, um, you know, I keep joking, but the referendum is a place to volunteer if you're looking for a date. It's a lot of young people, a lot of excitement, a lot of eager beavers. And what I would like to say is in order to get on the ballot, we only need 15 percent of registered voters. And so what I have been telling the people I train to collect signatures is if you go to a restaurant or you go to a party or a festival and 80 percent of people are saying no, but 20 percent of people are saying yes, congrats, we ha- we're going to get on the ballot. Right. Yeah. But what we are seeing is that our volunteers are being flooded with enthusiasm and excitement no matter where they set up. And I keep telling people, no one believes me, but I work in Buckhead and I go to Buckhead Starbucks every morning to get my you know, morning coffee. And I get five signatures every single day without lifting a finger, even in Buckhead. So there is not a part of Atlanta where we are not getting the signatures we need and we are being met with a lot of enthusiasm. And when we are met with questions, it's about, well, where are the officers going to train if this is not built? And I just want to remind everyone that there is a perfectly good state-of-the-art training center in Forsyth, Georgia, about 45 minutes from Atlanta, and it's where APD currently trains, and they can keep training there. So they have a state-of-the-art multi-acre facility, and that's where they should keep training. Well, and Fulton County wants to build one of their own, too. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, a big point that I've been making to people as they're signing is this facility is estimated to be $90 million. The price tag is going up. And Fulton County just announced that they're building their own training center. So Metro Atlanta will have two of these giant training centers, but that one is just $15 million. And I really want an answer as to why they're such disparate prices, because Mm -hmm. why is one $90 million and one is $15 million? And I think realistically, if Cop City is allowed to be built in Atlanta, we will see an arms race of these types of facilities across our state and frankly, across the nation, because these types of facilities do not make our community safer. This is not what police officers need to be better at policing. What they are is a shiny thing for elected officials to point to and say, look at what I built for you. And it looks real good on a campaign poster. You know, I was also going to say that it's almost like a recruiting tool. I I follow college football a lot. And so I know how the facilities race is with college. They all want those indoor practice facilities with the 50 yard indoor facility so that the players can practice inside the elements on a hot day like this. It's to me. It's 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 no different than a recruiting tool to bring in officers as well. I guess, and I will be honest. Once you start talking sports, I just can't keep up with you. What <laughs> I have been telling to the average person on the street is, if you went to work tomorrow and you asked for a raise, and your boss said, "I'm not going to give you a raise." but I'm going to build you a giant training center, you would be furious. And in the case of Atlanta Police Department, there are over 400 vacancies on the force currently. We cannot recruit and retain officers in Atlanta because we do not pay them what other places are paying them. So Peachtree City, Brookhaven, they're paying their officers $100,000 on average. Mm. And Atlanta PD are paid $45,000 on average. So as a result, Atlanta will always be a police force that one, struggles to recruit talented police officers, two, struggles to retain them. And so we will be hiring new recruits with no experience. We will be spending the money to train them up, and then we will be shipping them out to these suburbs, these wealthy cities that can afford to pay them what they want to be paid. And so this seems like an investment in safety. It seems like an investment in police officers, but they have a state-of-the-art training center what they need are mental health resources, a yep. pension to be paid fairly, and we will never have a safe city 
where we have a force that is not fully staffed. Alex Joseph, Cop City referendum campaign volunteer and a former state federal prosecutor. Thank you so much for the update and the time. All right, make sure you got plenty of cold water out there and stay in the shade when possible, okay? Thanks so much. Thank you, ma'am. Back after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast, this is The Ron Show. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Good to have Alex Joseph on. She is good at that. I want to get back to something she pointed out too, by the way. City of Atlanta police pay versus nearby communities. And I just did a quick Google of Marietta and Tucker and Sandy Springs and Roswell and all the surrounding. I just quick Google. And I think the only city that the starting pay looks worse than Atlanta is Sandy Springs. And listen, that's just a quick Google. But if I were coming out of a police academy and say the only job I could get was with the city of Atlanta, and I knew that the pay was below scale, comparable to nearby communities, okay, I'm going to take that job. But as soon as I sign the ink, however long my contract might be, if they make you sign a contract, I'm looking elsewhere the entire time. I'm looking for that better pay. If it's five grand, seven grand, upwards of nine, 10, 11, 12 grand more per year, why wouldn't I be doing that? And if you're an Atlanta taxpayer, a city of Atlanta taxpayer, and you know that you're getting these fresh recruits right out of the police academy, and they're getting all that experience while you pay for that, but then they take that, knowing that they're going to take that experience somewhere else the minute they can, are you not throwing money away? Are you not literally investing in the public safety of another community by providing that on-the-job training? Yeah, you're paying them. Don't get me wrong. But you're also paying them while they're training for the next gig that they are assuredly going to take. I used to work in retail in high school and college. And I can't tell you how many times I'd, uh, I worked for one particular grocery chain and it was their policy. They don't pay anybody more than minimum wage. That was it. And we lost a lot of them to better paying jobs. And of course, the minute they could, that's when they left and they take the experience that they gained under our watch, under our tutelage and onboarding and training a new employee in just about any job is paying them to do nothing but learn to do the job in the first place. And then they spend a little bit of time doing the job for you and picking up even more uh, you know, expertise, more knowledge and experience at what they're doing. And then the minute they can go, they take all of that, all that you've invested in their learning and training and on-the-job experience and expertise and experience. They take all of that and go across town and, and the other employer benefits from it. That's exactly what I, you're literally, as a taxpaying citizen of the city of Atlanta, you're literally throwing money away or actually investing in another municipality or county's sheriff or police department for them to benefit from it. That's not right. And that's something that should be considered when you decide if you're going to sign the petition and then come March, if you're going to vote for or against keeping the contract for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. Wouldn't that money be better served by, I don't know, paying your officers well, making sure that they have the health and mental wellness that they need? Obviously, that's the answer, right? And as we both talked about, there's already the state facility in Forsyth, Georgia, 45 minutes away, and Fulton County's building their own public safety training facility at a fifth of the price, by the way. Why would the city and the county not be collaborating on that? I'm just 
a little curious about that. And if I'm the Atlanta Police Foundation, literally, you are a foundation benefiting Atlanta police. Not the department, but the officers, right? Why are you not advocating for this money to go towards the officers' needs, starting with the take-home pay? I mean, I can't be the only one that sees there's like an obvious answer to how to please just about everyone, at least 50% or better, without pissing off a ton of people and pissing away a lot of money in the process. It just seems like it's, it's right there. Fulton County's going to build their thing. Why don't you just collaborate with them, save that money, or actually put that money into your officers for their take-home, for their well-being? It's just so obvious, right? I've been asked, by the way, are you for or are you against this public safety training facility? I've never really been on the record. Obviously, I've given airtime to the folks protesting it, so that should be a clue, I guess, but... I really just felt it was fair to give two sides to the story since local media really doesn't. No, I'm, I think I've decided I'm pretty much against this. I think it's a huge waste of money and it's forcing a facility on taxpayers that don't get to have a say in it in another jurisdiction. It just makes no sense. Back after this. Call or text The Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Well, there is this somewhat exodus from... Do we call it X now or Twitter? It's still Twitter with the X. Elon Musk is weird. Oh, anyway, I'm still there. I'm still keeping up. In fact, I am admittedly like many who launched a Threads account, and you can find me on Threads at RonShowETL, just as you can find me on Twitter at RonShowETL. Haven't left it yet. There are those that have. In fact, our, our prior guest, Alex Joseph, she she's off Twitter. Okay, I admire the commitment to anything but Elon. However, until it's, you know, we've gotten the all clear that some other entity like Threads can be more like Twitter without exactly just stealing from Twitter, which I think is Elon's argument to uh, the Zuck. Uh, yeah, I'm still there. You know, got, got, got one foot on one boat, one foot on the other and going downstream. Uh, I saw this tweet from Fred Wellman. Fred is the uh, host of On Democracy podcast on uh, something called Midas Touch, M-E-I-D-A-S, Touch. And uh, he's also the national chairman of the Forgotten Democrats. Okay. Anyway, uh, Fred Wellman tweeted something that caught my attention on July 23rd that I don't think is getting a whole lot of traction, but maybe should especially with all the revelations, the Giuliani big lie retraction or backtracking of sorts, the breaking into the Coffee County elections office and the stealing of, if not voter data, perhaps software information on Dominion voting systems. So anyway, his tweet on July 23rd, and, and I, I shared this then, and maybe I need to reshare it, have I got a story for you? Well, you've got my attention. Have I got a story for you, he tweets. It starts with a simple tip that someone has done a freedom of information request, FOIA request, for all 7 million voter signature cards in Georgia. Fred tweets, I was able to get a screenshot of the request. It's much more insane than I could have possibly thought, and people need to know. So he shared the screen grab. 
as it reads, to whom it may concern, I am a news reporter from Peach Tree Times. Three words, Peach Tree Times. A media organization committed to providing comprehensive and accurate news coverage on local governmental affairs. I am requesting the following records under the Georgia Open Records Act, blah, 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 preferably in electronic format. And then you see in the FOIA request that he seeks uh, copies of the signature cards used in the election process, including all relevant information associated with each card, such as the voter's name, address, and signature. This includes, but is not limited to, voter signature cards, absentee or mail-in ballot signature cards, provisional ballot signature cards, any other significant cards collected during the election process. As a member of the media, I'm involved in gathering and reporting news to the public. Access to public records is essential for me to fulfill my professional responsibilities, which include holding public institutions accountable and providing transparency to the public. Given my role in disseminating information, I believe I am eligible for a fee waiver as a media professional. Please let me know if you have any questions. Signed, Vince Espy, ESPI, with the Peach Tree Times. Okay. This tweet thread continues from Fred Wellman. The requester is a guy named Vince Espy, who claims to be a reporter for the Peach Tree Times. More on him later, but look at what he wants and think about the implications of a malicious actor getting the information he asks for in signature cards a year from a presidential election. Look at this list and always keep in mind, why does a, quote, reporter need this? Copies of the signature cards used in the elections process, including all relevant information associated with each card, such as the voter's name, address, and signature. Tweet continues. Thread anyway. He lays out precisely what he wants. Number one, voter signature cards. Number two, absentee or ballot signature cards. Number three, provisional ballot signature cards. Number four, any other signature cards collected during the elections process. You're talking about 7 million records that will need redaction. Again, Fred Wellman asks, why? The thread continues. So Vince Espy says he's a member of the media, so he gets the fees waived, is he? He claims Peach Tree Times. They are part of an AstroTurf media network. More on them later. You see, Vince has lots of jobs, but his real job is being a right-wing data miner. Google helps. He's a busy beaver with lots of jobs. Here he works for local labs in Illinois. And in April 2023, wanted the mission statement of Antioch schools in Illinois. Here he is again, back in October 2020, working for local labs, asking for two years' records on any guest speakers at Illinois' Crystal Lake School District in Northwest Chicago. Here is a fun one for Jacksonville, Illinois, School District with local labs, again in September 2021, requesting, quote, a list of all materials in your district that fall under the 1619 Project. Fred Wellman's thread continues. October 21, he hit Union Ridge Schools with a whole list of Moms for Liberty questions from local labs. Number one, COVID-19 protocol response. Number two, 1619 Project Curriculum. Number three, American Rescue Plan, Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief. Fred Wellman's tweet thread continues. If you Google Vince Espy plus Peachtree Times, he never shows up. His company is Local Labs. By the way, that's one word. No, like Local Labs, just no space. And they advertise themselves as a data miner for media. What news media? Fred Wellman asks. 
peach tree times is part of a huge right-wing astroturf op of, quote, local news sites funded by a network of cutouts. Fred's thread continues. Columbia Journalism Review did a deep dive on this dark money operation and its many layers of foundations and cutout organizations to hide the money tied to, quote, metric media. It's insane how big this operation is. And then he shares a couple stories from the Columbia Journalism Review. One of them headlined, The Metric Media Network runs more than 12,000 local news sites. Here are some of the nonprofits funding them. And by the way, I'll, I'll put this entire tweet thread uh, and maybe even these, uh, these links as well, although you can find them in the tweet thread, uh, in today's show notes at ronshoytl.com. Fred Wellman continues, How do I know Peachtree Times is part of this vast AstroTurf network? They tell you right on the about page. It's actually a 501c3, which tells you how broken the IRS system is for nonprofit oversight. You ain't wrong there. Here is the number one story on this Georgia quote local news site right now. A hard hitting story about how we need to pay attention to the Texas border. Notice the story is based on militia Tea Party Patriots. The founder of TPP is also the founder of Metric Media. Then he shows you a screen grab. Fred Wellman continues, so Vince Espy is not a reporter by any means. He's a well-funded data miner for far-right groups asking questions right out of the Moms for Liberty playbook. Now he is requesting all of the signatures of every voter in Georgia pretending to be a reporter to get it for free. Fred Wellman's tweet thread continues, what would far-right groups do with every single voter's name, address, and signature? Well, before I continue with that tweet, I'm going to give you a sample of an interview between uh, Brian Tyler Cohen and Mark Elias about Georgia's HB202 and what it lets folks do who want to challenge your right to vote. This is Democracy Watch. I'm joined by my co-host, voting rights attorney and the founder of Democracy Docket, Mark Elias. So, Mark, uh, a major ProPublica report revealed that because of Georgia's new election law, that's SB202, 89,000 voters' eligibility was challenged by just six right-wing activists. Now, of those 89,000 challenges, over 11,000 were successful, including over 2,300 voters who were removed from the rolls and 8,700 who were being placed in uh, a challenged status. Is there any indication as to whether those removals or those challenges are actually accurate? This is just an absolute disgrace. It is an absolute disgrace that we live in a country where private vigilantes are encouraged by the state of Georgia to challenge voters' eligibility to vote. And so is there any evidence that any of them were accurate? What there is evidence is that this was an effort to engage in mass uh, uh, mass disenfranchisement. It led to actual disenfranchisement. And that's really what people need to realize about this. How do you presume in reality that six people have the time, the wherewithal, the know-how to challenge 87 or 89,000 voters. Like, are, are those six people a proxy for some bigger entity here? Oh, they have to be. I mean, come on. I mean, let's just use common sense for a second. You know, you know we saw in 2021, in the run-up to the 2021 uh, runoff election, and just, just to, so that everyone, like, sets the stage. You know, in, in 2020, obviously, Joe Biden defeats um, uh, defeats Donald Trump. The Senate at that point is hanging in the balance, right? We're all like on pins and needles because there's going to be this runoff election for Senate involving two Senate seats. 
uh, in the state of Georgia. Uh, and the predictions are that the Republicans are going to win them. But the Republicans are are internally divided over the crazy uh, stuff that Donald Trump is spewing at that point about uh, about the outcome of 2020. So there is an organized effort, an organized effort to challenge 364,000 voters, 364,000 voters in advance of that runoff election. And we know that that was an organized effort. My law firm is in fact suing some of the people who helped organize that effort. So to answer your question, is the is this like six random people, you know, two years later? Come on. We know what this is, Brian. This is a nationwide effort to deny people the right to vote. And in Georgia, it is taking the 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 it is taking form in these vigilante voter purges. So to go back to the question that Fred Wellman asked, what would far-right groups do with every single voter's name, address, and signature? Question. Intimidate people who are scared that their signature might look different? Target them with disinformation? Get them kicked off the voter rolls? What is Georgia doing about this outrageous request, he asked. Why haven't we heard about it until now? Is Georgia Secretary of State, he ats him there, quietly going to give millions of Georgia personal info to a dark money front group. Does Stacey Abrams, Senator John Ossoff, or Reverend Warnock, he adds all three of them, know about this? I have heard it's about 30 cents per record in fees. That's $2.1 million if paid. If I was a Georgia voter, I would be losing my sh- right now, knowing that elections offices around the state are working on filling this request and giving your info to a fake news group for uncertain reasons. This is voter intimidation, suppression, and anti-democracy in action. Fred Wellman continues, what about Brian Kemp? He adds him. Are you going to let your citizens be treated like this, or are you afraid of the Mercers and the other right-wing billionaires probably funding this? I'd love to see Greg Bluestein, he adds him, or GPB News, he adds them, take a look at this and ask some hard questions. Lots of questions. By the way, if you are one of many who listen to America One Radio and this show, or this podcast even, from outside the state of Georgia, Fred asks a question that could be pertinent to where you live, if you live in the United States. Where else is this happening, he asks. Have they dropped these requests in other states? Vince seems like a busy guy. I can't imagine Georgia is his only target. And Media Metrics has 1,200 websites now nationwide providing disinfo and cover to, quote, reporters to get our info. Get mad, people. And by the way, as I'm perusing this tweet thread, I noticed that on the 24th, a day after he launched this thread, he got a response from a local Democratic official in Dade County, Georgia, which is the very north, I mean, the very the tip of northwest Georgia, like Cloudland Canyon, tucking into Chattanooga, Alabama, and Tennessee, northwest Georgia. Fred uh, shared the tweet. Great update from the good folks at Dade County Democrats that confirms my sources' worries as well. This is not a typical request. Don't let anyone tell you it is. The response read, okay, talk to my election official. She's gotten this request. Same guy, everything that's here. She was as confused about the signature card thing as I was. She she assumes 
They're talking about voter registration form. They want this info for every absentee voter in 2020. Even in a small county like ours, that's 5,000 people's info, roughly half of our voting population. That's an enormous man-hour request if it is determined to be a valid one. She's turned the request over to the county attorney to see what is public information that has to be given and what is not. Also, they're not doing anything until they get paid. I told her about the guy pretending to be a journalist to try and get the stuff for free. The Dade County Democrats tweet continues. She's very worried about two things, manpower. What they're going to have to do is pull everyone's voter registration form, make copies and redact any information on it that can't be seen. That's going to take enormous amounts of time for a small staff in a small county. Signatures is the second point. She doesn't think the signatures should be turned over to someone because that could be used for other things. That's why she turned it over to the county attorney. I, by the way, have reached out to Fred Wellman, in fact, just today, so we didn't have time to get him on, but I did reach out to him to try and have him on to discuss this situation further so we can stay on top of this story. So keep your eye and ear on this space for more on that. This is The Ron Show, back after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back, final segment of The Ron Show for Thursday, and... The big news that greeted us this morning economically was, well, let me just let the Fox business people tell you. This, Maria, 2.4%. Wow. This is the first read, the advanced read for second quarter GDP. Estimate was only for 1.8%. Talk about a strong economy. Uh, there goes that recession talk, right? Uh, and what's interesting here is the expectation was we were going to have a weaker Q2, this first read, than we had in Q1. Remember, we had a 2% read in Q1 for this year. We we're thinking we were going to have a slowdown. It's the opposite, 2.4%. And, you know, even the range, um, this is in the high end of the range uh, that economists were looking for. So that's pretty darn interesting. Uh, really, Q4 was 2.6%. So economy is still strong. So you would think, by the way, that this would also reflect on Fox Business's website. Well, it doesn't. Uh, let's see. I cannot find it on the top half of the website. Here's what I do see. Uh, airline says domestic fares are sliding and threatening to chill record revenue growth. Dow loses more than 200 points today to snap a 13-day run. See, Wall Street isn't happy that our economy is doing well. Uh, is that because maybe political prospects for the left are looking better? Hey, Ford raises their full-year guidance after a solid earnings beat. Let's see. I'm just kind of going through here. Oh, Trump grand jury leaves for the day with no indictments in sight yet. Although they are putting up barriers around the Fulton County Courthouse as we speak. Let's see. Bud Lightmaker to lay off. Well, you know, hundreds. Um, I'm still looking for anything here. I I mean, I'm scrolling. Uh, oh, here it is. After the sweet green shares tumble after salad chain reports weak sales but narrowing losses, then I see the headline. GDP grew at 2.4% pace in the second quarter, topping expectations despite recession's calls. Okay, Fox Business, you're there. Way down there, but you're, you're, I see it. Hey, while we're on the subject of watching television, I catch the problem with Jon Stewart all the time on Apple TV+. Plus. By the way, it's such a cumbersome name. Can it just not be Apple TV? There's the device that's called Apple TV, and now there's the service, the streaming service called Apple TV+. Plus. Eh, eh. Now, 
anyway, it's a can't miss show. I watch it all the time, but I miss him on the Daily Show. Anyway, I miss the Daily Show, but I definitely miss him on the Daily Show. Uh, speaking of the economy. So the working class needs to take its medicine for the overall good of the country. It's going to be painful, but it's necessary. Hey, what about since CEO pay has far outpaced worker wage increases? Should we come up with a medicine that deals with that? Some of these people are worth a lot more than they make. They're the ones, Judge, to your point, that are producing the wealth. These are small countries these people are managing. Oh, my God. We should be praising these people to heaven. The way I see it, you need to look at CEOs like they're great athletes. (laughs) What? I don't think I see it. And thus... The problem with inflation. Our leading economic minds have one and only one fix for easing the pain of inflation for the working people. And that fix is the Fed raises interest rates to crush demand and lower wages because wages rising must be the principal cause of inflation. Is there anything else, though, that the chairman of the Fed wanted to add to that? I don't think wages are are the principal story of, of why prices are going up. I don't think that... So it turns out the only tool we have to bring down inflation doesn't actually address the principal reasons inflation went up, just the part that helped you. The factors impacting inflation globally are complicated. Inflation, we have to remember, was caused by COVID. We've got supply chain issues. And it's got everything to do with Russia invading Ukraine. Labor shortage. Drought in California. Tax hikes. Avian flu. Corporate greed. Corporate avian greed! (laughs) Yes, it turns out one of the things rising much faster than wages is profit. U.S. corporate profit margins are the biggest they've been since the 1950s. Mm. Oil companies, the highest profits in 115 years. Meatpacking profits, 300% up. Egg profits, 65% up in one year. I mean, for God's sakes, if it helps, I'll just start laying eggs. (laughs) Can't be that hard. But then there's Nikki Haley, who you may have heard is running for president and is actually, I believe, either tied with or leading a fellow by the name of Ron DeSantis in one of the early states. Anyway, here's what she has to say about the economy and how great capitalism is when its government's hands are off of it. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe that, you know, small businesses are the heartbeat of the economy. And if small businesses have cash flow, they don't go on vacation, they hire people. I believe that government needs to stay out of the way. I believe capitalism has been the one and only way to lift up people in the history of the world. We don't need to start into the socialism creep. And I think freedom rings. And I think we need to let that happen. I like that. So wait a minute. Capitalism? What did she say? I believe capitalism has been the one and only way to lift up people in the history of the world. Except capitalism requires a strong, healthy workforce, an educated workforce, right? And capitalism can't provide that on its own. In fact, left to its own devices, it does the exact opposite. It doesn't care about the health and wellness of the population around it. And it doesn't provide education at no cost. But Nikki Haley is part of a political faction now that knows that the path to least resistance is just the easiest way to go. She's not going to get to the White House on the backs of small donors. She knows she's got to depend on the big check writers. So she's going to protect them. While she's giving us the ham-handed Main Street USA small business chat, 
Just keep in mind, we're watching as Elon Musk is destroying a social media network that was pretty healthy and vibrant when he got it and is in the throes of its death knell as we speak. And she seeks the nomination of a party that would much rather give progressively bigger tax cuts to the better off than to the small business owner. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. here on the America One Radio app. AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. More at RonShowATL.com.